So here we are. We're going to be in chapter 5 of Proverbs today. Lord, we ask for your blessings as it has been prayed and as we simply want that to be confirmed in our hearts, agreeable, Lord, to the message. All of your word is for us. It is true and in where we're at is very often where we are at as a culture. It is where at times we have been as individuals. We look to you and that's the wonderful promise, even as we can reflect that we've had communion. You've dealt with the issues of our life. You have dealt so beautifully in grace and mercy for the consequences, Lord, of sin that have at times pillaged us in our life. You are faithful. You have a plan for us. And so we look forward to being encouraged, even as there is a sobering message within the text Lord, there's nothing better than to have illumination in the areas that for others are still dark zones. We want to commit this time to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a phrase, and it goes something like this. And I want to capture it as clearly as possible. Sin is attractive as a prospect, but it is hideous in retrospect. I think that's such a classic summation of what this text helps us to understand. Again, just to take note of it, sin is attractive as a prospect, but hideous in retrospect. So one of the things to remind ourselves of is that as we move through life, there are component parts of life that endeavor to move through us. In other words, the carnal spirit is easily incited in rebelliousness and lawlessness against the things of God, God's purposes for us. And so we've all been violators. We've probably suffered consequence in our violations even of what we would call civil laws. Within this context of Scripture, certainly is anchored civility or civil reservation, but it's, it's actually a biblical context that we're looking at. And one of the things that I was reminded of that I always, I think I'm pretty candid with you guys on, and I have a challenge with my seatbelt. It never gets buckled when it ought to, which is before I turn my ignition on. And I know better because I spent six weeks learning to be a driving instructor. And of all things, you got to be kidding me. I violate it with such consistency. And I'm reminded of it when I see any car that looks different than mine and more official than mine. And then I'm saying to myself, how do I get out of this? And so I look for the convenient side street, totally criminal behavior. <laughs> Christy is one that as I drive with her and realizing that her belt is not on, nor mine, she'll say, just fasten it, Rich. They will see that you're honoring the law and they'll leave you alone. I can't. It's admitting that I'm a violator of the law. Watch me do it. So she dramatically takes the seatbelt and just winds it around her and latches it. And I'm frozen like an ostrich with my head 
in a sand dune, not just a sand pit, a sand dune. And when I'm by myself and that happens, then I, no kidding, have looked for the side streets, have the clever turn signal on. And when I pull in, I'm going, oh, Lord, thank you. Forgive me. Is he following me? Did he see me turn off? Where's he, you know, he going to find me? And the idea there is that those are the things that remind us that there are both lawful ordinances and spiritual commands that the Lord desires to guide and direct us on. In other words, the seatbelt by objectivity is intended to keep us safe when there is an accident. God wants to keep us safe in the event that there is an accident. In other words, a collision of both what is the carnal intent of Satan and yet it is against the godly purposes that God has desired for us to have a wonderful life, have a life that's meaningful and limited in the context of consequences. Solomon is the author of the book of Proverbs. He's also the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. He's also the author of a beautiful poetic and marital book called the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. And in its trilogy, we are able to see that both wisdom is given to us and what has been cited as that which God induces us through life's experiences to benefit from. It is both with enigma, that means something that is puzzling to us, something that will require great diligence to be able to comprehend, to decode, and mysteries, those things which to our eyes and our ears, they have not yet had a revelatory opportunity in our lives. We have to ask God for that. The things that we would say are easy to understand, great, because God wants us to know that many things in our life experiences are far more easier to understand with him than without him and among each other than apart from each other. And so when you look at the trilogy of the books, wisdom that is available for us to ponder and scratch our heads and seek the Lord diligently as in mining for gold. In Alaska, I mined for gold with my father-in-law and my two brother-in-laws. And it was awesome because I actually struck gold. I have five little grains of gold that came by a sifting and water that was extracting and causing the heavy metal to go below the sand that it was coming out of. I couldn't have done it by myself though. I actually needed to have a professional beside me to reward me with what was in my pan. In the same sense, your wealth is not going to have anything to do with simply the trying of it. You've got to have the expertise behind it. You have to have somebody engaging you to teach you the principles of it. But I do have a little vial. It's got five grains in it. It's authentic. I was enamored, though, when I moved into a gift shop in that same site and found a bottle that was just glistening with like gold nuggets. They were floating in there. And my eyes just went, wow, could I have found that in where I was at? Probably not. Is this as big as it looks? Not really. It's an illusion. They take kind of what you have. They pound it out. They stretch it. 
they put it in a bottle that gives a mirrored, if you would, reflection of it. And then it's floating in a substance that magnifies it. So it's not as much as is in my bottle. You probably have more in your bottle than what's floating in that thing that caught your eyes. See, the thing that caught your eyes was so big in your eyes and your imagination went crazy. That's why we sell them. We sell them to people just like you because you don't know what you're looking for. You're just impressed with what it is that you've looked at. In essence, the idea there is that as we move through wisdom and as we move through the other component part of Solomon's thinking, which was ecclesiastical, what he's learned in life and the importance of things about life, he became very discouraged about how life was going. Most of Ecclesiastes will have the summation of a conclusion saying, this is what I know. You better love God and follow him. The rest is vanity. And so even though I have gold, had I made that my passion, turned my back on God, said goodbye to the church to pen for little grains of gold that have already been exhausted up in Alaska, I would live a pathetic life. I would find myself even emptier than perhaps at times we feel presently. So let me move on to the other component part of this, and that is the passion for living, and the passion actually of living for someone and with someone. And that's really what this takes into consideration. You'll see in the context of this book of wisdom, these three elements, wisdom that's needed to live in a manner that glorifies God, the ability to stay committed to the Lord, to your family, to your spouse, no matter how you feel. And the other component part would be, how do we then love God in loving the person romantically that we are with? Mind you, though even in the title, which again was asked of me on my way to church, it pretty much captures what we will find in this text. Our ration of passion is reserved for God's fashion. We get a ration of it. I left Alaska with a ration of gold. It's going to get me nowhere. But God says what I give you, what's available to you now, will last you and it will outlast you and it will be available to the next generation that may be the last generation beside you. It's a ration. God desires us to have first a passion for him and to be able to translate that passion to the person that's closest to us, which is our spouse. And by the way, the culture is getting it quite wrong. As you've understood in times of additional teachings, we're learning to lie and we're learning to change what is truth and accept a lie in replacement of God's word. There's a generation that will learn to be having their ears tickled by artificial intelligence, which has already been tested out in Germany where a congregation actually sat before an AI-generated preacher who was already equipped with the sermon to speak the whisperings of a contrary gospel to the ears of those who wanted to be teased with something different than the word of God. Just a theme, 
just something more motivational, less convicting, no condemnation. Somebody that can have all of the wisdom, all of the knowledge of the assimilation of every man and woman who's ever been engaged in thought, condensed and put down that we can sit before and come into mutual agreement on. See, not everybody's going to be in mutual agreement, even in the text today, because we're still going through stuff. Stuff has happened to us. Stuff is still yet to happen to some of us, but God would say, I can prevent that. I can help you on that. I can help you out of it. I can continue to bless you in your journey with regard to it. But I did want to be able to give you that narrative that Solomon's trilogy of the need and endowment for wisdom and the fact that we will at times wrestle with the disappointments in life and ask ourselves, is this all for vanity? And then to be able to say, Lord, I've tasted it all. But what I need to taste is you. And that taste of you needs to transfer to the savoring of the relationship that you've given to me, which is godly. Undeserving by any means for anything that I've done or who I am. When we have spouses, men, you know the scriptures say, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. You will not see that return phrase to the woman. She's exceedingly valuable, incredibly greater in wealth than anything that's in her pocket or her bank account. And yet at times men are challenged to say, what do I do with it? What do I do with her? How have I failed so miserably? Because the standard is high. The standard is following Jesus. He's a remarkable not only man, he's the God-man. He's a remarkable bridegroom. He's the one whom we follow. So let's get into our text. Let's see where this takes us. Let's find agreement in it. Remember the phrase, sin is attractive as a prospect, but it is hideous in retrospect. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding. So many people want to be lended something. And the appeal here, the Spirit speaking, Solomon pending, it says, listen with your ear to what I am going to say that you might have understanding. To an educator in school, understanding means comprehension. Do you comprehend? Verse 2, that you may preserve discretion. We live in a culture today that does not exercise discreetly. We have become indiscreet. We have become shows in our own right. We have become those who desire the eye upon us. And we also say to people, Keep your eyes out of my business. And we really are a arrogant culture these days. The arrogance is due to lawlessness that has been 
unchecked. And the lawlessness is due to ungodliness that has not been properly addressed or challenged. It has from the church, but not as powerfully as the church once was able to do. For even the church has found itself suffering from anemic behavior, kind of a halfway house, as opposed to a full house of God, full house of prayer, full house of the gospel, in which the spirit is given great liberty, great empowerment, but it is not more necessarily of him, nor is it more of the word. It's the balance of what both the spirit does and the word of God as it is to be taught in full doctrine, not cultural indoctrination, but full God doctrine. And so as this advances right now, this is all leading to what you may see as your subtitle, The Peril of Adultery. Let me simply say that it's not a difficult word to understand. In fact, it has on one end just an innocence about it. It means adding to that which is already sufficient and perfect. When you read on a label that this is an unadulterated project product, it means that you're eating something, you're drinking something that hasn't had any addition to it other than what it represents itself to be. And so when you look at this in the context of that word, that's God saying, I don't want added anything to this which I have given. In the institution of marriage, I do not want added to the institution of marriage anything other than what I have given. I am not the lesser institution as our culture is saying the church is, and I am not divisive with regard to what marriage is to represent. It is a whole institution as the church is a whole institution. There is not to be division concerning it, nor confusion about it. But boy, are we living in times in which we're endorsing confusion. Just read the other day that there's a push both in colleges and in particular federal agencies that are starting to blossom as arms within government, that there needs to be a vocabulary change. We do not want to recognize women as being pregnant. We want to call them pregnant persons. Persons, not women, which the scriptures tell us are both very distinct and with them being distinct, high honor, exceptional honor. So much honor that God would say, you'll never have a reason for ever doubting my love for you because I've given you one that is of such favor, such vast wealth. You'll never be able to say I was impoverished my life. And so when we look at this, we see that the preservation of discretion is important to discreetly be those who in humility not only walk with God, but walk with the people whom God has allowed us to cherish and to love and to grow with and to be an example before others too. In verse 2, as it concludes, and your lips that they may speak knowledge or keep knowledge. We're not to forget. In the Old Testament, 
a reference in Proverbs is that we are not to remove the ancient boundaries. Boy, are boundaries being broken today. Pressing the boundaries, moving the line, not addressing that which is not to be that which we conform to, but that which God prohibits us from participating with and in. We're not to be doing that. Notice this in verse 3. And it's now moving into a specific person, but we have to understand that this also has a pointing finger at any of us that have endeavored at any time to add to what God has said, to disobey God in any manner or measure that he was clearly directing us in. But this is likened to a woman. It's important to note, this is not just a woman. It's an immoral woman. You can't take this personally because this is in reference to a woman that has chosen either by consequence or rebelliousness to pursue selling herself. When we talk about a woman such as the scripture is giving us indication of right now, they are a woman obviously absent of God's heart. They do not have the spirit of God in them at this time. And they are used as an illustration of what is easily provocative for a man to be sidetracked or ultimately doomed if they follow the persuasive counsel of a woman who is considered immoral. So the root word of immorality or immoral is moral. Moral simply means it's a standard by which right and wrong, good and evil are understood. God has put that in our heart. If he put eternity in our heart, then he has put a conscience within us that says that's right, that's wrong, that's good, that's evil. And the only thing that can corrupt that is ultimately godlessness, meaning that individual is no longer prodded or put before the counsel of God's word, which is why families fall in to such disarray, dysfunction, divorce. It's not always the situation, but godliness by far is one of the things that needs to be in play when godlessness is at play. We have to be those that understand without being a disciplined person in the word, and one who takes themselves to the house of God, your house will fall. Your relationship will not have fruitfulness. So this person has simply been identified by character, goes all the way back as far as the generations of men and women in which Satan has found that component part of what God wants exclusively directed to him, which is passion for him, and directed it and misdirected it to carnal expression, which is the deeds of the flesh. And so it says that in this person, the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood. So I go back to that phrase that we found, again, I think that identifies this teaching, and that is that with regard to Morality with regard to, obviously, sin. Sin is attractive as a prospect, but hideous in retrospect. Everybody can look back and go, oh, man, that makes me sick. 
we're marked very often even by what we would call associative memory. Associative memory means that something marks an event in your life that could be from the highest pinnacle of faith, a great joy. We were in Alaska to savor through my nose the fresh air and the different fragrances of wild flowers and the scents, obviously, that come on a ship that's cooking pretty much 24 hours a day. I can appreciate both what it represents at its highest tribute of delight, but I have remembrances in my nose and in my mind and in my heart of those things that by fragrance remind me of the hideous situations that I've passed through, been involved in. In essence, those fragrances are markers. Do you know that the scriptures speak through the elements both of teaching and of communion and the incense that the prayers represented by the priests would be offered before the Lord? We're to have the fragrance both of Jesus, which Paul would tell us is diffused to the world. They smell us coming. We are to them as odious as perhaps they are to us, but we're the ones that make the difference for eternity where they simply make the difference for what we would say absurdity leading to ultimately damnation. This is a woman that could be typified as the world system. It's passion that is adulterated, meaning it is corrupted, and it has nothing to do with the authentic work of God for presenting an individual into the best possible relationship forged between men and women on this earth in its temporal status. Bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword, you're going to get sliced and diced. And it's so sharp you won't even know that it happened until you're parted and pieced out. It continues to say, her feet go down to death, her steps lay hold of hell, lest you ponder her path of life. Her ways are unstable, you do not know them. Meaning that you shouldn't know them, but you can't possibly presume that you know them well enough to escape them. Our ears are to be protective from the voice of seduction. And we have a culture now that says, listen to me, follow me, hear me, open your eyes to me, open your arms to me. Verse 7, therefore hear me now, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her. A person is being represented, but it could be anything that indeed has its clutches on you. And it's not simply as easy as saying, get away from me. It's the spirit saying, you get away from it. You get away from them. This is your responsibility. You might have put yourself in the mess. Somebody may have come into your life that messed you up. But you can't simply say, get away from me. You need to be able to say, I must flee from it, from her, from him. I need to get away. 
And do not go near the door of her house. That means where these individuals are, that's not your residency. That's not your place. Best house you can be in is yours domestically that God has given to you with a spouse. And the one that precedes that, that in my opinion is the favorite one for me to come back to, is this house, the house of God, the house of prayer, the family of God. To think that I could come back on a Sunday to be united with people that not only amaze me, but inspire me. And we've all had different weeks, haven't we? I could tell you about Alaska. I survived it. I could tell you about the beauty of it. It is, the vastness of it. Whoo! I'll share this just really quick. There's a t-shirt that shows this big giant map of Alaska. And inside this t-shirt that has Alaska is an icon of Texas. And the phrasing on it says, how cute, look at Texas. <laughs> because it's dwarfed by Alaska. But what dwarfs Alaska is the house of God. This place, which is truly a field of dreams that God gives to us about heaven, about our purpose on earth, and about the passion that we are to have reserved exclusively for God. Passion that is his, that is to be lived out in the partnership that we have. And by the way, partnerships that we have in marriage that are to be abundantly represented here will have the challenge that Ecclesiastes presents because until we get to heaven, nothing is perfect. But the person whom we are with is the perfecting agent for our life to bring us into that place exactly as God has purposed for us to be until a change takes place, until my life is exhausted and I'm brought beneath the turf, I'm the best perfecting agent in Christie's life as she is in my life. And as well, in the spouses that we have, there isn't a better pick until a time in season changes that then we are to be changed by the person whom we are linked with, to rejoice in every possibility that God has for us. But the most important thing is that we remain true to God, unadulterated by a world that celebrates adultery, adding this, adding that, refining this, but not by the fire that God uses, but by its own heat a heat of passion that's contrary to the things of God. And so we see that as an illustration. We're to be those who hear because we're being counseled right now as little children. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will remove it far from them. God's desire is to raise us as his children who will submit to him on the premise of a correcting God. And the only way you're able to do that is to not outrun God, but to say, okay, I'm bending over. In school at one time, <clears throat> athletes in particular, the locker wasn't, their locker room was not our playground. And we had coaches that made sure they knew that they were masters of us. And so if you were even a top-grade athlete, 
but you were misbehaving in that locker room, you would hear the words, bend over, Ablett. Grab that bench. And if that's not low enough, then grab your ankles. Why me, coach? Because I caught you. And those paddles were refined with air holes in them. They were long, as far as I could see, like an eight-foot two-by-four. And they could wheel those things like, wow. You, you had a reality check. You had new breath that was drawn by your heaving, trying to cool the pain in your britches that even your football gear could not protect you from. And so one of the things that I now reflect on is that, man, what I learned in those locker room counseling sessions with one board to my britches is what I ought to do and what I ought not do. As children, the Lord's appealing to us that we might grow up to be mature individuals that ultimately would be parents. The best of friends to those who are co-laborers with us as brothers and sisters. The warning is with regard to this that we have a future that has a certain hope. That's where this is all going. We're not to depart from the words of God's mouth. Notice this, verse 8, remove your way far from her. We've looked at that. Do not go near the door of her house. We've looked at that lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel one. Verse 10, lest aliens be filled with your wealth and your labors go to the house of a foreigner and you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed and say, how have I hated instruction and my heart despised correction? This is why when correction happens, we are to be recipients of it obediently, respectfully, humbly and say thank you Lord I needed that and I know that you're faithful that as I respond to you candidly and honorably you'll take me from that room of if you would punishment to blessings and fulfillment how long do you want to be in the room how long do you want to be in that place of correction you just change the direction God's arms are open. Remember in the story of the prodigal son, what we realize that it's a generous father waiting with his arms open to the son who willfully is taking what seemingly is his. The father allows it, but the father is always waiting, realizing that the incidences of life will correct him in the consequences that he'll experience to the day that when he's sharing pea pods and junk from a trough, he'll say, my father's servants are eating better than I am. This is what I'll do. I'll go back home and see if I can entreat my father just to live even as a servant, not realizing that the heart of the father was to open his arms up, to robe him, to put rings on him, to throw a feast for him. That's why it's important to understand that even in the events of life that are corrective, sorrowful, at loss, we have a father that's waiting with his arms wide open. And even to the jealous eyes of others say, why would that person get an opportunity to be blessed when they in essence put themselves in the predicament of being cursed? That's the amazing thing about God. He's an amazing God. He does grace not only so right, he does it so lavishly, you can never get ahead of it. 
And you can never say anything but the Lord's kindness has led me to repentance, leads others to repentance. And so this moves and magnifies ultimately to the consequences of those who with hard hearts choose not to give their life over to the Lord, to heed instruction, but rather hate instruction. Verse 13, I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. This word could be the rhema word to your heart today, to any of us. I was on the verge of total ruin. So if you're on the verge of total ruin, you haven't been ruined totally. You're just on the verge of it. You need to be able to tell people you're just on the verge of total ruin, but you're not ruined. And I have a God that can take the ruins that you see right now are evident and the things that have fallen apart in your life, and he can change your life. And he can brick by brick and line of mortar by line of mortar reestablish you. You are on the rock. You don't have to be on the sand. And whatever that sand represents, God in one word can make it into a rock. That's all it is. It's little tiny rocks. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. If you're one of those on the verge of total ruin, but you're in the midst of the congregation, great news. God can put you back together again. Let's close on this. It's the important component part of having moved both through the Proverbs for wisdom. The second, Ecclesiastes saying, oh my life, oh my word, oh the vanity the complexity, the depression, the anxiety. We move to the highlight, which is solidarity with the mate of your life. It says this, drink water from your own cistern. This is poetic language. Solomon did that. They understood what it meant. And running water from your own well should your fountain be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Imagery again, when we look at water, we look at it in its best context, its most thirst-quenching representation, blue or crystal clear. I've never lapped my lips and fainted for water from the Mississippi the way that I understand it's a muddy river. When we were up in Canada where glacial flows broke off and formed streams of water, it was very clearly defiled with mud. Nothing wrong with it, it's just it wasn't a stream that beckoned me to drink from it. We found out that our ship was actually sustaining itself on water that was purified in the ship system, drawn from the Pacific Ocean. It was amazing tasted water because it was filtrated. And they said even perhaps better and what nature itself could do, how different it was to grab a glass of water literally from our tap and to compare it to a bottle of water and you're going, wow, this is equal to or even better. And that's what the Lord would say with regard to this illustration, that out there, whatever the world says will refresh you, quench you more. He says, don't try it. I am crystal clear on this. 
I am the refreshment exclusively for you through that person, your wife, wife through your husband. I'm exclusive, nothing better, nothing else. Let them be only yours and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Well, I'm not young anymore. The young in spirit, though, always will be with us because Paul would counsel those that were to flee youthful lust. He's not talking about teenagers. He's saying that the sense of youthfulness is always with us. Why is it that maidens and old men can talk about the early years and they can light up as if those years are right in front of them right now? Why is it that we are encouraged and enamored with the vitality and the vigorous living of the young if youthfulness wasn't within us? The difficulty is realizing that we're getting old and we can't keep up with the desire to be actually physically young again, but we feel it on the inside. And the Lord is saying that in this, we're to rejoice in the wife of our youth. We're all getting old. We've changed. I'm about 180 pounds heavier than when Christy first met me as this Grecian athlete with a flowing mane of blonde hair. Okay, the imagery now is actually moving into deception. The weight, probably true. But she sticks with me and sticks on with me and cooks me good food. I just have to learn how to now assimilate food without gaining weight. But I only use that illustration to say that we're meant to be together until together isn't possible. Not because of choice, but because of consequence. In other words, life has consequences. Death is not a consequence to us, but it is a change and how much more I can do or cannot do, how much she can do and cannot do. Until that time, I'm to rejoice in the youth, the wife of my youth. And that says a lot to me because I was 38 when I was able to be married. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, the imagery again is saying that when you look at them, there is both a playfulness and a natural order of them belonging together. They are fascinating creatures. We saw them in Alaska, watching out for one another, nuzzling noses together, being near, watching out over their brood. It's just let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. There's an enrapturement that happens exclusively via the woman to the man that's a rapture moment. It's not an eternal moment because that's not going to come until eternity gives way when the temporal folds. But what it is saying is that love is determined powerfully as a man sticks close to the wife of his youth. Then her love is reciprocated in a manner that is rapturous, an out-of-body, out-of-world experience, that which moves him from perhaps where he was mired into an ascended spiritual state in this body. Its revival is what it's talking about. It's pretty incredible. 
But you would only know that if you're not distracted by so many of the other things and that the focus is mutually both for the husband and the man. It's a workout. Don't you find that love is a workout? You can go to the gym, but I guarantee you, if you focus on your marriage, which all of us are to do, it's as much, if not more so, a workout than going to the gym. One represents what you will achieve both visually. The other is what you will achieve internally. The internal workout that a husband and wife get by working through things and out of each other is by far the greater achievement. There's nothing wrong with working out. But in the imagery right now, the Lord is also defining the unique design of a woman. We're, as a culture, saying there's no distinction. In fact, what are those things for anyways? Get rid of them. Let's redefine our children before they're born or at the time that we first see Bobby pick up a Barbie that was left by his sister. Let's change things. There's distinction. This is what the scriptures are telling us. Distinction and who she is, how she looks, what she does for us. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman? Meaning that we can have in a temporal, in a corrupt sense, an attraction and a passion for someone, again, qualified as immoral. We're vulnerable. And so what wives are to do is to limit that vulnerability by proximity and love. And be embraced in the arms of a seductress? No, nothing else, no one else. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, concluding, and he ponders all his paths. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords of his sin, and he shall die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. It concludes with what you would call an exclamation that we not forget. We're called to be mindful of the beauty of godly passion, but to be also sobered in the fact that at any time your eyes removed from God and taken away from your spouse, you ultimately could suffer loss through calamity and going astray. We've seen it. It happens. It happens in the church. But God's not through with any that they may have happened to. Presently, who we're praying over, God's not through. Lord, we ask for your blessings in this word. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.